genuine faith is tri- a, a triumphant faith. Yes. Yeah, sure. Yeah, yeah. No problem. Oh, I, I, all right. Well, you just in case just, I move. Yeah. All right. Gotcha. There you go. Is that okay? Yeah. Now this has, oh, this is the amplification? Yeah. So you don't need that one? Yeah. Okay. It's fine with me. <clears throat> so faith, tr- genuine faith, is a triumphant faith. In other words, uh, if, if, you, if you really possess faith, your faith, it's a little too, it has an echo to it. You might want to, yeah. How's that sound? Does that sound a little better? Or too much of an echo still? Yeah? Um, <clears throat> you know, it goes back to the issue of whether or not we can have victory. Genuine faith is a triumphant faith, not a defeated faith. If you're not having a life of victory, it's not the. It, it, it really relegates itself to the issue that you really genuinely don't have faith, real genuine faith. But what's interesting here is I love the progression. If you notice here that um, we, 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 we because when we're justified, it says here we rejoice. We we have peace with God. We rejoice. But not only that. We see life differently. Very interesting perspective in verses 1 to 5 because he's saying not only do we rejoice that we've been forgiven, but we rejoice in trials and tribulations. Now, on the surface, that seems rather sadistic because you're thinking, I don't know, how do you, you know, you're a sadist? I mean, what are you, crazy? I mean, you're insane? Who's going to rejoice over being, you know, suffering? I mean, you know, it sounds, you know, sick. But you have to keep in perspective what God is trying to do to you, what he's trying to develop. In other words, he's allowing the trials and tribulations of life to come to you. And he tells you for what reason. He says to produce patience in you. Because in the end, patience will teach you to endure. You know, people give up too easily. And you've got to learn to persevere. Go back to the life of Abraham. For 40, I still, there's an echo. You got an echo in here, brother. Sorry, I can even hear it. It's annoying. <clears throat> and um, the um, the life of Abraham, if you go back to that, what I was referring to earlier in chapters 12 to 22, you know, for 45 years. Now, as I said, he didn't have a perfect faith. He did not have a perfect, but he did have a persevering faith. There was something about him Though he had a, a faulty character from time to time, um, he had a determination. He wasn't going to give up. You know, I think that too many of us don't have a fighting spirit anymore. You know, it's just, just we just we just kind of put the you know we fall one time we surrender. Uh, we make lousy soldiers. I mean, we would not win a battle. We really would. It's amazing. We, we, you know, we're, it's amazing that we can even get a fire shot off. You know, it, 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 it's amazing. We, we, it, it's just that we just quickly surrender once we're defeated, or at least we seem to perceive ourselves to be defeated. And we've got to learn to hold on, hang in there, fight the good fight of faith. Don't give in. You may fall. You may. That's possible. I didn't say you, you would. I said you may. Now, that's a possibility. But then you've got to learn Patience, hold on, endure, fight the good fight. Because what does patience do? It brings endurance. And what does that do? It says it develops character. And that's the gold that's been tried in the fire. That's what God really wants out of you. It's character development. But character development can't come unless God allows trials and afflictions and sufferings to come in your path. So when you look at it from that perspective, you see not the trial itself, but the end result. You know, for example, think about this. Suppose I were to say to you, I want you to dig a hole the size of this church, and all I'm going to do is give you a shovel. But when you're done, I'm going to give you $10 million in cash. 
Now, you've got to learn not to worry about how big the hole is. You have to see the end result. It is it going, are you going to be tired? Are you going to struggle? Are you going to endure? In other words, you see, you know, there's, look, every time you dig that shovel, I'm going to have a backache. And it's going to, ah, now one more time. But in the end, what i got to do is not focus on the pain, not focus on the trials and afflictions and the suffering. i got to see the end result. I'm getting $10 million. You follow what I'm saying? You understand? This is what God's trying to help you to see. So in the end, you'll see the trials and tribulations differently. Not that you say, oh, boy. I just can't wait to suffer. That's not what he's talking about. He's talking about rejoicing in the result of what the trial will do for you if, if you learn to live by faith. If you learn to live by faith and trials and afflictions come your way, which they will, because Satan's going to make sure of that. But God's going to use what appears to be so negative to produce something so good. And that's character development. And by the way, that's the only thing you're taking to heaven. There's nothing else on this earth we're taking to heaven. We're going to be stripped of everything. Do you realize whatever clothes you have in your back at the time, of the, at the moment Jesus returns, if we're alive, and I pray to God we shall be. But if we're alive when Jesus returns and we see him usher in through the clouds of glory, I don't care what kind of clothes you have on, they're going to be stripped of you. You're, they're going to be left behind. You're going up in the, in, the, in the cloud of glory. You're going to be enshrouded in the glory of light. God's going to robe you with something vastly different than what we are now presently wearing. So everything from this earth, everything will be taken from you except one thing, character. And so he's talking about the importance of understanding the meaning of the trials of life. Yes, trials will come. Yes, you may have a bad day. But somehow, someway, you've got to fight your way through that. And the only way to do that is to learn to live by faith. Hold on. Don't give up. Keep persevering. You know, don't, don't let the devil get the best of you. I know sometimes he does. I know that happens. Sometimes you just wonder, how, how did I get into this mess? But listen, by the grace of God, God will take you out of it. And, uh, you know, whenever there's a valley, you can better believe there's a precipice on which you will eventually climb and you'll see the sun brighter and more glorious than you've ever seen before. I think too many times we, we live in the valley and we're now content to live in the valley because we have rarely, if ever, experienced the sun, you know, in its full glory blazing upon us. I think if you've experienced the difference between the two, you'll never want to live in the valley again. You want to always live on the mountaintop to see the sun at all times. And uh, so this is the experience of the, of the justified individual. And that's what he's talking about. Here is an experience of someone who's justified. It's not that they don't have trials, but they see trials very differently than someone who doesn't live by faith. Verses 6 through 11. <clears throat> While we were still in our helpless and ungodly state, by the way, this, this section here, 6 through 11, is, is to me one of the most fascinating concepts in all the scriptures. It's the doctrine of reconciliation. Now, it has been misunderstood even by some Seventh-day Adventists. Some people equate reconciliation with the doctrine of salvation. Now, listen very carefully to me. Reconciliation has a correlation to salvation, but they're not the same. Now, let me explain Justification and sanctification. There's a correlation between the two, but they're not the same. And so it is with reconciliation and salvation. Reconciliation is the means by which God has brought about the solution to reconcile the world unto himself. He did that through Jesus Christ. Now listen, reconciliation made it possible. Listen very carefully to the, what the words I'm using. Reconciliation made it possible for all men to be saved. Now, not all men will be saved. For many are called, but few are chosen. Meaning, invitation is given to how many people? That's right. To every nation, kindred, tongue, and people. That should clearly indicate to you the nature, the extent of the gospel invitation. So reconciliation has made the gospel possible for all mankind. Now, look. Let me, 
let me share it with you this way. When man sinned, when man sinned, meaning Adam, when he sinned, he broke that covenant relationship with God when God originally made him. Didn't it? That right? That's right. The, the, the aura of light, the glory of the light of God that surrounded him was gone now. And so when Adam sinned, um, he, at that moment, forfeited that covenant relationship. Now, God had a problem with mankind because everyone who would be born thereafter would partake of sin. And they did so because they chose to sin. And the reason they chose to sin is because of the faulty nature of, of, of humanity, meaning we no longer had a will that could resist in and of itself the, the temptation. You see, we were so weak, mechanically speaking, in human nature that we couldn't resist temptation. So we, we, we chose to sin. So when the sin problem came into effect, it broke that covenant relationship. Now man, God, God had a problem. He had to find some way to save mankind. He had to reconcile that situation. So what he did was he devised a plan, the plan of redemption, in that he would send his son to remedy the defects. And so, remember, sin is the transgression of the law. The wages of sin is death. The nature of death, death is equal to the law. The law is eternal, therefore the death is eternal. Which means only one who is equal to the law could meet the demands of the law, at the same time satisfy the claims of the law, and offer eternal life to mankind. And that is only Jesus Christ. An angel couldn't do it. All the angels of heaven couldn't do it. You know why? Because they're created beings. And so this, by the way, proves, the plan of redemption proves Jesus Christ is God. He's eternal. He's not a subdivision of God. He is God. He's as much as God as the Father is God and is as much as the Holy Spirit is God. All three. Now, again, th th this is why you have Seventh-day Adventists, some of them, oh, the Godhead's not true. This is it, you, you can't explain these great, you know, these questions. It's a, it's a, you know, it's it's a fallacy. Blah, and they go on and on with it. It's because what are they doing? They're using natural reason to figure out a supernatural truth. Of course, you can't explain it. First of all, look, friends, beyond human comprehension. If you could figure out God, in other words, if you could define God and lay it out in very simple terms, you would be the fourth member of the Godhead. And think about the audacity of man, the arrogance of man. I mean, think about it. You know, you may be a very intelligent person. That may well be the case. You may be very disciplined academically. And I hope that's the case. But having said that, listen very carefully. I don't care how academically disciplined you may be. Your mind isn't equal to God's. You, are, you have a finite mind, not an infinite mind. God has an infinite mind, meaning no beginning, no ending. See, we live and operate with beginning and ending. Our days. You think God sits, you think he's got a watch on his wrist? You think God says, what time is it, Jesus? Oh, three in the afternoon. Why isn't time relevant in heaven? Because heaven is eternal. How do you define eternity in terms of time? You can't. There's no such thing as a beginning or ending. Well, if God is eternal, then there's no beginning and there's no ending. He's always been. He always will be. We, though, on the other hand, we're created beings, which means what? We had a beginning. So we're finite in our understanding. We're limited in our abilities to comprehend and function and operate. You understand? We operate within that realm, a start and a finish point. God doesn't operate that way. It's completely foreign. The problem is we're trying to figure out the eternal God and place him within the framework of, of, of uh, a beginning and an end. And this is insane. You can't do that. Uh, it, the Godhead's beyond human comprehension. And just because someone asks a question that can't be answered doesn't mean they're, they're full of wisdom. It means they're asking a question that has no answer because God never gave us the answer because we don't have the ability to comprehend the answer even if he should give it to us. Deuteronomy 29, 29 says, The secret things belong unto the Lord God, thy, or Lord thy God, but those things which, notice, which are revealed belong unto us. So the reason God reveals certain things to us is because he knows you're able to comprehend it. 
And the reason you have no explanation in regard to other things is because he knows it's useless. Even if God were to, to explain it to you, you wouldn't be able to comprehend it. You don't have the mechanics to register it. You understand? It wouldn't make any sense to you. That's like trying to teach a baby uh, uh, geometry or, or trigonometry. You know, some crazy theory. You know, They're not going to be able to comprehend that, even though you're logical in your presentation. And it makes full sense to those who understand the science. But if the child's not disciplined in that academic, guess what? Not going to be able to comprehend it. And so this is what's happening with some people. Um, the doctrine of reconciliation is absolutely fantastic. It's the doctrine whereby God orchestrated the plan of salvation to remedy the sin problem. He sent his son into the world to satisfy the demands of the law because when man sinned, the law bro was broken and the law demanded one thing, satisfaction. You, you owe me. You, you have to pay me. Now, we, as human beings, we can pay the demands of the law. We can satisfy the, cl the claims of the law. We, in and of ourselves, can do that. The only problem is this. Once you pay the price, there's no hope for you to have eternal life. You understand? You'll die the eternal death. And the law will be satisfied. Problem is, again, you won't be saved. Now, God's problem was he wanted to satisfy the demands of the law because the law demanded justice, and rightly so. At the same time, he needed to save the sinner. He's got a problem on his hands, at least it appears to be. So he sent his son into this world to die in behalf of man. He became our substitute so that we don't have to die. In dying, he met and satisfied the claims of the law once and for all. Then through Christ, God offered that gift of salvation to all of us as a free gift if you simply accept it by faith. In so doing, what did God do? When he paid, when Christ paid the price, he reconciled the world. He reconciled the problem. Don't you see? He reconciled the, the sin problem. Now listen, when Christ reconciled the problem, that doesn't mean at the moment he reconciled the sin problem, everyone was saved. The doctrine of reconciliation is universal in nature, meaning when Christ died, how many people did he die for? Some people, most people, all people? He died for all people. Did he die for a select group of people? No, he died for everyone. So that's the doctrine of reconciliation. It's called universal, but not universalism as you might hear it and understand it in evangelical Christianity. What they've done is they've taken the doctrine of reconciliation because it's universal in nature and said, well, when Jesus died on the cross and said it is finished, therefore he saved everybody. And hyper-universalism is that God, since he's God of love, doesn't wish that any should perish, that he'll eventually even save Lucifer himself. Universalism, no one will ever be lost. But that's not what the doctrine teaches. The doctrine of reconciliation the doctrine of reconciliation is the means by which God made it, listen now very carefully, made it possible for all men to be saved. You hear me? So reconciliation is the, is the doctrine that God gave his son to save us. In other words, the act itself to remedy the sin problem. And in so doing, he reconciled now the sin issue with God and man. Now what did he do? He now made it possible because reconciliation is for all people. He made it possible for everyone to be saved. There's no excuse for anyone not to be saved. None. And the doctrine of reconciliation proves it. Because God so loved the world. Okay. He didn't so love some people or most people. He loved the world that he gave his son. That's the doctrine of reconciliation. And so reconciliation has now made it possible. And what's happened with some people, even in Adventism... They believe that once Jesus died on the cross, he justified all men in that he pardoned all men. Listen to me. Pardon and justification are synonymous. When Jesus died on the cross, did he pardon everybody? Did he pardon everybody? No, he did not pardon everybody because what is pardon? It's justification. Friends, 
if Jesus on the cross pardoned everybody, it means I don't have to exercise faith to be justified. All I have to do is this is what this is what some people say. This is in Adventism. All you have to do is wake up to the realization you've already been justified. No, of course not. That's that's a fallacy. That's not Seventh Day Adventism. I got to wake up to the reality that I've already been justified. They've, what they don't understand is the difference between reconciliation and, saint, and salvation. They don't know the difference between the two. Now, as I said, is there a correlation between the two? Absolutely. But they're not the same. So, uni- uh, uh, reconciliation is universal in nature. Salvation Salvation is only given to those who exercise faith in embracing Christ as their personal Lord and Savior. Isn't that right? That's why uh, you, I told you before in Acts 4, 12, it says, There is no other name given among men, under heaven given among men, whereby we must be saved. There's only, it's, his name is Jesus Christ. <coughs> this is why. Excuse me. This is why we have a problem in Adventism. <coughs> He's got it. Thank you, sir. Oh, boy, do I need that. <coughs> it's a shame that some people just fail to recognize the difference between the two. <coughs> By the way, I just want to. <clears throat> Excuse me. I want to recommend a book to you. <clears throat> Unfortunately, it's long been out of print, but you can download it for free on the internet. It's called The Atoning Sacrifice of Christ. It was written by C. H. Watson, <clears throat> W. A. T. S. O. N, who was <clears throat> at one time. The, head, uh, the, uh, the president of the General Conference of Seventh-day Adventists. It was written back in 1934. The Atoning Sacrifice of Christ. The Atoning Sacrifice of Christ by C. H. Watson. What you do, <clears throat> you go and do a general search, of Google, you know, just a general search on your computer, Google search, Punch up the title, The Atoning Sacrifice of Christ by C.H. Watson. Then right after that, three letters, PDF. Three letters, PDF. And then what will happen? Just then hit enter, and boom, it will come up. You'll see it. You'll see it will see the title. It will say PDF. Click on the site. There you can download the book for free. <clears throat> now, the reason I tell you about this book is it's the best single volume on the plan of salvation from a Seventh-day Adventist standpoint you'll ever find. It's as solid as a rock. I mean solid as a rock. And in there he has a chapter that is so brilliantly written on the doctrine of reconciliation. I'm telling you, you you have never heard this from a Seventh-day Adventist. It is, and it's not that he's preaching anything new. This was fundamental Seventh-day Adventism in the 1930s. No longer is. Now, there are those of us like us who have no problem embracing it because we know it to be the truth. So please do yourselves a favor. Download that book. I'm begging of you. You'll never regret it. Never regret it. So let's go on now, verses 6 through 11. Talk about the doctrine of reconciliation. I laid a little bit of groundwork. I'll reemphasize some points in Paul, what he says. All right? While we were still in our helpless and ungodly state, God, at God's appointed time, and in the Greek there, <clears throat> it actually means not only at, at God's appointed time, but at the right moment of time. The way the Greek is, sometimes you'll find, for example, and this is one particular case, you will find a Greek word <clears throat> when translated, in this case, English. There is no one English word that would be sufficient to describe that one Greek word. You may need multiple words. And even then, of the multiple words that you use to define that one Greek word, 
there, it's still not sufficient to really enhance and understand the fullness of what the, the writer is saying. So what you have to do when you translate is find the most suitable word uh, to describe the essence of what's being said. You understand? But even then, as I say, it's, it, you're falling short. You really are. And a lot of times you'll find that. And this is one of those particular cases. It means not only at God's appointed time, it means at the right moment of time. You know, it's just like, for example, you, you know, somebody's about to fall off a precipice. At the right moment of time, here comes help. You see, it heightens, it heightens the, the what? The deliverance. You know, if you know that you're about to die, and I mean you know there's no other hope, that's it. You're about to go. And just as your, your fingers are about to slip off that edge, just boom, right at that last moment, here comes somebody saves you. That heightens your salvation. You appreciate it a lot, lot more. Other than if you just fell and you're not really in that much danger, and then somebody kind of helped you. They helped you. I mean, they did. But it really, you don't feel that much gratitude. So the Greek actually means there was at an appointed time that God chose to send his son. That's the 70 weeks. But it was to be at the right moment of time, he was to come and save us. And it really opens up the meaning. It truly does. Beautiful. I love it. It says, at the appointed time, at the right time, Christ died for the ungodly. Now, he's defining, listen, he is defining reconciliation. He says, for a person who would scarcely and with much difficulty give his life for a self-righteous man. Yet, perhaps you might find someone who would die for a good man. You're not going to find anybody to die for a bad person. And you, you might, you just might find somebody who'll die for a good man. Maybe, maybe. It says, the sacrifice of Christ is the greatest demonstration of God's love toward us. And he did this while we were what? Still sinners, rebelling against him. <laughs> Friend, you've got to understand something. Christ died for us when we were spitting in his face, cursing him. Meaning, friends, we weren't, a, we weren't God's friend. He died for us and demonstrated his great love toward us by doing this while we were rebelling against him. Verse 9. <clears throat> and much more than this. For if Christ died for us while we were still sinners, it is certain that through Christ, God will save us from the wrath to come now that we've been justified by the precious blood of Jesus Christ. Now you think about this. If, if this is the greatest demonstration that God could give in giving his life or giving his son in behalf of mankind. This is the greatest demonstration that God could perform in, lo in loving man. If he did this while we were sinners, while we rebelled against him, Paul says, and he says this, if you think that was great, what do you think he will do for you when you are justified, when you become his child? In other words, if Christ demonstrated so much love while we were rebellious, wait do you see what he has in store for you when you become his child? You see? So he's saying, man, you, it, you, can't, you can't imagine what he's going to do for you when you become his child. You just have no idea what he's going to do. Then he goes on to say this in verse 10. He says... <clears throat> For if while we were enemies, the enemies of God, we were reconciled by the death, by, to God by the death of his son. Now again, reconciliation is not salvation. It made it possible for us to be saved. And having been reconciled to God, how much more certain it is that we shall be saved by Christ's life. In other words, Christ made it possible for us to be reconciled. Now we're reconciled to God, and in so doing, it opened the door for us to be what? Saved by the life of Christ. 
you see, now we can be saved by Christ's life. Reconciliation is the door that's open now. In other words, the door was closed. And now the door is flung open. And now the gospel invitation is, come on everybody, you all can be saved now. Christ made it possible. He has reconciled the sin problem with God. God is at peace over this. In other words, he's at peace with the sacrifice of Christ. The law is satisfied, the claims of the law. Now the gospel invitation is given to everybody, not to some people, all people. Because, because the nature of Christ's death is such that he died for all mankind. Reconciliation is for all, not for some. And so when Christ died, he satisfied the claims of the law for everybody. So now the gospel invitation is given. Everybody has an opportunity to be saved, but not everybody will accept the invitation, will they? No, only those who embrace Jesus as their Lord and Savior and exercise faith in Christ, they, they will be justified. Verse 11, and not only that, we can't help but rejoice in God through our Lord Jesus Christ, through whom we have now received, notice, reconciliation and salvation. So through Christ, he's made it possible, one, for me to be reconciled to God, right, because he solved the sin problem. And number two, what did Christ also do? Open the door to what? For me to be saved, right? That's what he's talking about. This is the doctrine of reconciliation. Please, if I come back here again, I don't know, if, I mean, hopefully I do, but I come back and I'm going to quiz some of you. I'm, I'm going to try to remember your, your faces. I may not know your name, but I'm going to, and I'm going to quiz you on that PDF file, that book on the doctrine of reconciliation. You all better be ready. I probably, probably won't be coming back. Probably won't be coming back. They might say, well, you know, now let's not rush. He was here last year. He, he was here last year. No need to put the man in here that quickly. Now, let's go on. Now, what I want to show you now is something really, really important. Now, this is all about... He's, he's actually going to elaborate more on the doctrine of reconciliation. Now, listen very carefully. From 12 to 20, uh, 22, 21, excuse me. From 12 to 21, the Apostle Paul is going to talk about a series of contrasts between the first Adam and the second Adam, Jesus Christ. Everything that the first Adam did, the second Adam undid. And the extent with which the first Adam uh, uh, sinned in regard to the effects that would come, Christ went far greater than that. So if, for example, if the first Adam walked a mile, the second Adam walked two miles. You understand? He didn't equal that. He went beyond, way beyond that. So this is very important because this is going to show you the beauty and the power of what Christ did when he gave his life. And it will really come down to this as well when you really understand these verses. There is no excuse for you not to overcome. No excuse because when he closes out this last section, that's when he continues on with Romans 6. Now you know, you know, Chapters and verses were put there by man. They're not, that, that's, that's not a part of uh, the way that the original scriptures were written. They had no chapters. They had no verses. They just, it was just a, a letter. You know, one continuous just letter. That's all it was. We, we, we put in chapters and verses. Now, look, I understand there's a reason for it. And, it's, and in some cases, actually, it's justifiable in the sense that you're trying to figure out where's that at, that story, or that verse. Where, where's that at? So it's easy to remember where things are. The problem it has from time to time um, are a few setbacks in this, in this way. Um, like in this case here. You read the end of chapter 5, you think that his thought process is ended now. In other words, oh, he's done, he's going to begin something new. No, no, that's a mistake. Because he's actually continuing on the thought process. In other words, chapter 6 is actually dovetailed into chapter 5 based on what he's saying in chapter 5. So to really capture the impact of chapter 6, you've got to know what in the world he just said in chapter 5. If you don't know chapter 5 in terms of the full argument of, of the point that he wants to make, chapter 6 you're going to be missing some things. Not that you'll misunderstand every aspect, but the arc of the argument will be gone. 
you won't really know the point that he's trying to drive home. So let's go on now. Chapter, uh, chapter 5, 12 to 21. This is, now we're coming to the close now. But really, you'll watch and see what I mean. Therefore, by one man's act, excuse me, therefore, by one act of Adam's transgression, sin as a principle and power entered in, in, in this world. And we received from him the great law of heredity. We inherited from him a sinful, falling, and dying nature. Though we are not guilty for Adam's sin, even so the sentence of death passed upon all men. Why? Because we, ha we, all, uh, because we have all chosen to sin. Now there's a reason why I translated it that way, and added those, uh, that commentary into that, because that's exactly the issue. There are some who believe that because we, we descend from Adam, uh, and when Adam sinned, therefore we inherited his guilt, his shame. It's called original sin. Now there's elements of the argument of original sin that are true, meaning that we are born depraved. There's no question about our nature is depraved. I mean... Both Isaiah and Jeremiah clearly describe the nature of man as well as other prophets. And, and so we are born depraved. But the question is, why are we born depraved? In other words, we inherited a fallen nature from Adam. But be, just because we inherited a fallen sinful nature from him doesn't mean we also inherited his guilt. For if that were the case, then that means we are guilty, not based on the choices that we make, but rather we're guilty on the, on the fact that we inherited a fallen nature, meaning that guilt is the same or equated to equal to nature. So if that's the case, then Jesus could never have taken our fallen nature. For what would that mean? It means he would be, the moment he was born, he'd be born guilty. Well, you can't have a guilty Savior. So... The argument here isn't that we are born guilty. We did not inherit Adam's guilt. We did inherit uh, from him a fallen nature. That is true. But not his guilt and his shame. That's why the last part of, the, of that verse says, uh, we inherited from him a sinful, fallen, dying nature. Um, and it says, uh, but not his guilt. Even so, the sentence of death passed upon all men. Why? Because we've all chosen to sin, not because we were born into sin. You understand the difference? There's a vast difference, the reason why I translated it that way. And by the way, that's the correct way it should be translated. I didn't translate it just to simply inject my thoughts and ideas. <laughs> I've got to let you know that right now. That's exactly the point he's trying to make. But some have misinterpreted his words. Verse 13, sin and death was in the world before the law was written down at Sinai. Isn't that true? Wasn't sin and death in the, in the world before uh, the law was written down at Mount Sinai? Of course it was. Now, sin cannot be imputed to someone when there is no express law to convince men of it. Nevertheless, death reigned from Adam to Moses before the law was written down on Sinai, even over them who had not sinned in the same manner as, Mo as Adam meaning in the face of an express command of God. Yet, Adam is a type of Christ. But, now notice very clearly, but only by contrast. He is only a type of Christ by contrast, in the point that Paul wants to make, or yes, that Paul wants to make here. Christ has come, Christ was to come, and, by the way, make sure I'm right about that, we'll make sure I'm at, did I, did it? 14? Yeah. Nevertheless, okay. Oh, did you change it for me? God bless you. Thank you. Okay, um, now I forgot where it was at. 14. Um, at the end of 14, Christ was to come and redeem Adam's failure. Everything that came through Adam's fall is undone in Christ. Or better still, all that was lost in Adam is restored in Christ. So the curse of sin that Adam brought to all mankind, what did Christ do? He reversed it. 
the power of sin, the dominion of sin that came as a result of Adam's sin. Sin no longer has to rule and be, have dominion over you. That's the whole point of Romans 6. You're no longer under the law. That's that. That's exactly. He's reversing everything. That's what he wants to say. What What did reconciliation do? What did the life of Christ do when he went to? Well, he reversed everything. Everything that Adam did, Christ undid. Now, now there's no excuse for you to say, "Well, I can't stop sinning." Oh, yes, you can. Oh, yes, you can. And I know people say, "Well, brother Ray, are you perfect? Have you Have you stopped sinning?" See, that's the wrong question you should be asking. Look, here's the, let me make my point. The issue isn't whether I'm perfect or whether I've stopped sinning. Here's the key. The question is whether or not you believe what God said is true or not. Did God say we can live without sinning or not? Now, if he didn't, in other words, if we, we believe, no, that's not what he said. Well, then we need to find out what he meant then. But if God actually meant what he said in regard to the nature of sin, that we can have victory over that sin, whether I'm living that or not, the question is, did God mean that? And if he did, guess what? We're, we better do it if we expect to get to heaven. So, uh, it's just a perverted way some people have about that. Either we believe what God says or we don't. And that's really the key issue here. And I think there are those, even though they may not have reached the point of satisfaction in their own Christian life, they still believe it. In other words, they know this is what God says. And like Abraham, I'm not going to give up. I may have fallen, but I'm not giving up. And what's interesting in the life of Abraham... What I find interesting is Abraham, during that 45-year period of his life, as I say, from time to time he, he, he fell. And it was a great embarrassment to him and, and even to God in some aspect. What's interesting, though, because he persevered, at the end, he then did achieve a perfect faith. In other words, through the process of perseverance, Abraham eventually achieved perfect faith. And that's the key. Don't give up. Say, Brother Ray, you don't know what my life's like. I don't need to know what your life is like. And please spare me. I don't, don't tell me. <laughs> the point is one thing is very clear. No matter what failures you may have had in the past, no matter what your experience may even be at this present moment, don't let the devil play with your mind and your head. Recognize where you have failed. Be honest with yourself and say, you know, I've let God down. Um, but Lord, by the grace, uh, by the grace of God, I'm I'm going to keep going. I'm going to persevere. I'm going to hold on. You don't give up. You don't give up, dear friends. You fight to the very end. You hold fast to that which is good. Paul says, and that holding fast to that which is good, it means you hold on with everything you've got, the last fiber of your being, every last ounce of energy you possess. You hold on. And um, it's, you know, look, we just, we can't give up, dear friends. I mean, as I said before, where are you going to go? Where? Man, not back into the world, that's for sure. I mean, that's not an option is what I mean. Um, verse 15. Now, there is a difference between the first Adam and the second Adam, Jesus Christ. The difference is between Adam's fall and the free gift of Christ's righteousness. The effects of Adam's sin came to us without a choice on our part. And that's right. Isn't that true? Sure. We had no choice in the matter, did it? Did we? No. We're born in this world. Look at where we're born into. I mean, I know you, I, I'm sure you like Cleveland, and it's no different than Baltimore or Detroit or any other place. I'm sorry to tell you, dear friends, not that attractive. Cities are not attractive. You understand? The most beautiful place on this earth doesn't even come close to indicating what glory must be like in heaven. I don't think we can fathom the concept. So, um, there is a difference between the first and the second. It says, the effects of, of Adam's sin came to us without a choice on our part. Nevertheless, death came to us all. But infinitely greater is the, gift, is the grace of God and the gift of Christ's righteousness, which is given to us by his grace. Now listen only if we choose to receive it. See, the difference is the first one, we have no choice. But if you expect to be saved, you do have a choice. You understand the difference? The first one, we had no choice in the matter. But in the second, everything hinges on the choice that you make. 
For if Adam's sin can pass death to all of us, then the free gift of, of righteousness from Christ can be offered to all of us. There's that reconciliation. Remember, offered to everybody. What made it possible for the gospel to be offered to everybody? The, the act of reconciliation. And the gift of Christ's righteousness is not the same as it was as the result of Adam's sin. The gift of Christ's righteousness far exceeds the condemnation and ruin brought about Adam's sin. While the result of Adam's sin led to the just and lawful reign of death over men as sinners, and notwithstanding the many offenses, the result of Christ's work was not a mere reversal of this, but it was to bring about a triumphal reign of justified men over death in glory. It was to not just reverse what he did, but go far beyond that. And as he says, the triumphal reign of justified men over death in glory. We're to overcome death not just in terms of the nature of sin, in terms of what it brings, the eternal death, but the physical death as well. In other words, whether we live or we die, we will overcome death. Death will not have dominion over God's people. Now, it has temporary dominion over those who have fallen asleep in Jesus. But really, that's just a part of the physical aspects of it. But the soul is saved for eternity. In other words, the redeeming value of that character, because they've chosen to accept Jesus as their Lord and Savior, is safe for eternity. Death cannot hold them. They will be liberated. And that's what he's talking about, the ultimate liberation from death. For by one man's sin, death reigned through one man over the whole world. Much more shall they who choose, notice the language, who choose to receive God's abounding grace and the gift of righteousness shall reign in life for, for man's lost dominion will be restored by one Jesus Christ. Everything that was lost in the first Adam will be restored. The lost dominion. You know how he said in the, in the beginning, if you read Genesis, man shall have dominion over the field and over the animals, all that's lost. You know, listen, I've been to safaris in Africa. Trust me, you don't want to get out of a Jeep and start walking up to a lion thinking you've got dominion over that beast. No, you don't. But in heaven, I don't know, again, let's assume there's a lion there. I mean, there, you know, other animals, whatever kind of vicious, or what we perceive to be a vicious animal. You go right, right up to them, listen, they'll purr, they'll, they won't threaten you, they won't do anything, they won't growl. They're going to just be harmless like little puppies. Verse 18, therefore, by Adam's offense, judgment came to the whole world, which led to condemnation. By the way, just a footnote, there will be lions in heaven. We know lions and sheep will, will play together. Just thought I, I can just hear some of this naysayer. Therefore, by Adam's offense, just judgment came upon the whole world to lead to condemnation. Even so, the free gift came to all men to justification of life by the righteousness of Christ. For if by one man's disobedience many were made sinners, then by one man's obedience many will be made righteous. Furthermore, the law was not instituted to take away our sins, for no man can be justified by it. The law was given that the offense might abound. And every mouth may be stopped and all the will may become guilty before God. That we might learn that God loves righteousness and hates sin. That his law is exceedingly broad. That it is spiritual. It extends to all the imaginations of the thoughts. That God will not diminish one jot or tittle of his perfect standard. Which is a transcript of his character. The law is the perfect standard by which men are taught to measure themselves. That they might see their guilt and condemnation. And be led to look to Christ who is the end of the law for the righteousness to everyone that believes. The effects of the entrance of the law is to shed light on sin. That it might abound to all its extent in normity. So that grace might be displayed as abounding far above sin. Why does God through the law magnify sin? So that you can see that grace is far greater. Remember. Remember, the reign and power of sin would last until the death of Christ. At which time Christ would overthrow its dominion. And just as the reign of sin brought death, so the reign of grace brings eternal life through the righteousness of Jesus Christ our Lord. 
Now, he doesn't stop there because in Romans 6, he then says what? Shall we continue a sin that grace may abound? No, God forbid. How can we live in sin, right? And so forth. So, and so you see how he just picks right up where he left off right here. He just keeps the argument going. He's moving into a deeper understanding of the point that he wants to make relative to the issue of grace and, 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 uh, and sin itself. And so everything that Adam brought was undone in Jesus Christ. And the effects of which Adam's sin came upon man, Christ far exceeded that in the work that he did in behalf of man. Dear friends, there's no excuse for us not to have salvation. There's no excuse for us not to have victory over sin. Christ has reconciled the sin problem with God. That's done. That's finished. Reconciliation is a complete act. It's done. You understand that? God doesn't have, have to keep reconciling the world. That is done. When Christ died on the cross, he paid the penalty for sin. He reconciled the sin problem with God. That's it. It's done. He's satisfied. God is completely satisfied with the work that Christ did in, 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 in meeting the demands of the law and paying the penalty for sin. He's completely satisfied. He thus reconciled the world unto himself. Now he's opened the door to the possibility that all can be now saved. And that's the key. Now it's where we as Seventh-day Adventists come in. We're to go forth to the world and preach the three angels' message, inviting them into the doctrine of the gospel, uh, the gospel message of salvation. You see? So that's, that's Romans 4 and 5. All right? Just a little nutshell, just kind of a quick little overview. And I hope it was a blessing. Listen, how many want to save me? Lord, I want to recommit my life. Please come and take my heart. Help me to be a born-again believer. And Lord, if I've fallen short, please forgive me. Help me to rise up. And like Abraham, and like uh, Jacob, and so many have gone before, give me a persevering faith until I reach that perfect faith. How many want that? God bless you. Let us pray. Father in heaven, again, we thank you. Please keep us. May your angels watch over us and bless us. Help us to let go of this sinful world. We thank you for your tender mercies. In Jesus' holy name, amen. Do me a favor. Pray for me as we travel. Keep us, uh, keep us uh, so the roads will be nice and wide, very few people going. People are about to decide right now to get on the road who are going to come down our pathway. Just, I want them to say, you know what, let's just stay home. <laughs> so uh, please keep us in your prayers. We do appreciate it. God bless you all. Take care, and we'll see you, God willing.